And today we're talking and jumping into this very important passage, crucial, actually life-changing passage, um, in Romans chapter 1. And before we really delve into that, I mean, I, I'm still kind of in disbelief that we are in the middle of September already. And this past week was a big giant wake-up call, was it not, and how cold it was outside? That was a big time. The weather has changed, there's a bit of cold in the air, football is in full swing, and Bears fans are trying to remain optimistic, even though history and experience have told us that the season is already over. Um, after watching last week's debacle. Um, but you know, you know what I like, though? I like a great story. I mean, do you like a great story? I mean, I think of the Bears, I'm like, if they lost today, which probably they will, um, then they'll start off 0-2. Now, I'm a Bears fan, and I'm hoping, though, that even if they lose the first two games, season looks bleak, that they come back win every other game and go to the Super Bowl. Don't we love stories like that? When it seems, he's like, no, he's a Detroit fan. Um, you, you need to have faith, brother. I mean, crying out loud, it's like the Cubs of football. Um, so, you see, I mean, we like great stories, do we not? Is that why we like movies? I mean, think about your favorite movie for a moment. What's, what's, why is it your favorite movie? I mean, do you, do you, can you recall a scene or some dialogue from that movie? You can recall the emotions and how it made you feel. I mean, there's some great stories out there. Some great films, great books. I mean, not just movies, but there's all these great uh, stories that come together and touch our hearts in amazing ways. But you know what's amazing to me is how often there is one theme that you see repeated in story after story uh, again and again, and, and because it's the greatest story ever told. It's actually the story of Christ. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but did you know that there, the story of Christ is embedded in many of our favorite films? The story of redemption. I mean, think about it. Let's go back a little bit. I mean, you, you've got, uh, I mean, numerous films with, with biblical themes. And, I, and I've shared a little of this before, but some of you have seen the movie E.T. See the movie E.T.? You know that's one of the most Christ-like films ever? People are like, are you crazy? Yeah, think about it. God comes from heaven, comes to earth, does nothing but heal and love, is misunderstood, persecuted, dies, rises again, and goes back up to heaven. I mean, think about it. There's a lot of films like that. Or, I mean, the story of redemption is told in Nemo. I mean, finding Nemo. Here's this son who has gone off in, in rebellion. He is captured because of his rebellion, imprisoned, and his father crosses the entire ocean to rescue this one who's held in rebellion. It's the picture of the Son of God coming to rescue us who have been caught in rebellion because of our sin. There's another great picture of it. Or, or the Matrix. There's this Neo who is this chosen one meant to save humanity. And he, he, is, uh, he dies. And then the love of his girlfriend, which is, what's her name? Trinity. Trinity loves him. He rises from the dead and then ends up saving and delivering humanity who is caught in this slumber and don't even realize they're caught and ca captured by the Matrix. It's a picture of sin. I mean, there's biblical themes throughout, and not just like that. I mean, we see these in, in stories. Superman is a great picture of, of this one who comes from the heavens, is, is different than us, but yet identifies with us and is there to protect and save us. We see it over and over again. Whether it's in movies, novels, fables, myths, or fairy tales, Christ, the story of Christ, is embedded in each culture, it's embedded in, in stories 
all over the place because it is the greatest story ever told and is retold again and again and again. In movies like the, the Chronicles of Narnia, when Aslan gives up his life, that's very explicit. Or Frodo in The Lord of the Rings, and he's the only one that can carry that ring that represents sin and a putting it away so that everyone can be freed. Or you've got other ones like John Coffey in The Green Mile, who takes on people's sin and suffering and ends up dying for the sins of someone else. I mean, these are pictures of Christ. He is there. Others, uh, other movies, such as the animated children's movie Iron Giant. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's a great movie. But here's a, this thing, being comes down from the heavens, lives on the earth. He then ends, ends up, people discover who he is. He's persecuted. And then he ends up giving his life to save the very people that um, are persecuting him. He dies. And then, I mean, he, it, it seems like he dies, but then he resurrects from the dead. I mean, can you see the story all over the place? I mean, then there are pictures of Christ all over in films such as Gladiator and Braveheart where the the hero dies to bring salvation to a certain people. Other films have it as well. I could go on and name one one after another. It's repeated all over the world and, and in different cultures and in different stories. It's the picture of Christ. Now, knowing the power of such a story should cause us to go back and look at the original story. Where does it originate from? What is the root of all that? Where, where, is, where are all these people drawing their inspiration from? I mean, what is it about that story that's so attractive, that can capture our hearts and our imaginations and our emotions and speaks to us who we are and where we are at and what we really need? And that's redemption. See, each one of us look and, and resonate with those stories because they speak to something about us that we long, that God has allowed to be in our heart, a a longing for rescue, a a hero that would come and and transform and be there for us. And it's my contention, knowing that God has placed eternity in all of our hearts, that this, this story speaks to who we are and what it is that we need, and that's redemption, and all of us need it. So today, I invite you to look into the scriptures with me as we examine this wonderful, powerful, life-transforming story that we might see why this story is important and what it means to us in our daily lives. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we come before you amazed at at what you have done in the story that you have written, this divine drama of redemption. Lord, as it's played out within the scriptures and we see played out over and over again, going back and hearkening back to the original story, may we be able to capture the essence and truth of that story. May you capture our imagination. May you bridle our heart and bring it under your conviction that we might see and behold your salvation. So Lord, speak to us today. Show us the reality of who you are and who we are in light of you and what it is that you have done for us. So speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we are in the book of Romans chapter 1, and I want, to, I want us to look at this passage together, so make sure that you are turned there with me. Um, I'm going to be delving into the uh, English Standard Version, known as the ESV, as translation. You might have something slightly different, uh, but that's okay. Now this passage begins with, 
for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, the word for ashamed uh, carries the idea of being singled out, humiliated, or dishonored by misplaced confidence or support in something, meaning you backed the wrong thing, and you feel guilty and horrible that you picked the wrong thing. And he's saying, I'm not ashamed um, I, for the gospel of Christ. And, and it's interesting, he's not ashamed of that which he has aligned with, namely this gospel. Now, the word gospel is euangelion, and literally means God's good news. And what is this good news? This good news is found throughout the Bible. In fact, the entire plot of the Bible is about developing, explaining, and living in light of this good news, which is true, liberating, and life-giving. But what is this good news exactly? I mean, if we're to capture the immensity and intensity of God's good news, then it requires us delving into the plot of the gospel. That's the first point I want you to write down. If we were to really capture and understand this divine drama that God has played out and that, that people, um, directors and writers and, and uh, storytellers throughout the years have, have tried to take this story and, and add to it or put it into a different context, we need to understand the true plot and why this story is so good. I mean, this is not a story just based on action sequences and everything blowing up. This is a story with one amazing plot and action. Um, but it's, it's delving into this plot of the gospel because he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, for salvation, if you have to say it's going, um, salvation means to be saved from something. Now, we have to, before we can understand salvation and being saved from something, we have to ask, what are we saved from? What are we saved from? And, and, and we need to understand that we have a sin that has sentenced us. We are indicted and brought into this great story of God's gospel. This great drama of redemption starts off in Genesis. Without Genesis, we have nothing, by the way. Genesis has the beginning of everything and answers the essence of who we are and how we got to where we are. And we understand, not only in Genesis, but the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 5 that harkens back to Genesis, that sin entered the world violently through our first parents, Adam and Eve. They fell. They took the, eat, the, ate the forbidden fruit. And I do believe in a literal Adam and Eve the scripture presents that Jesus believed in a literal Adam. He refers to a literal Adam. And he, he speaks and we see that sin entered the world through Adam. That Adam had willingly disobeyed God and then sin entered the world. We fell and we who were made in the image of God were, were marred. And then each one of us then has original sin that we've inherited from our parents. And we know in our heart of hearts that we are sinners by nature and by choice. We are all sinners, everyone in this room. And you know what? You don't get rid of original sin. So let me clear up some mistaken or um, misunderstood theology right now. Baptism does not remove original sin. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that. Nowhere. We see that, that sin, we have original sin, but Christ paid the price for not our original sin, but our, our all the sins we have done, past, present, and future, and died to set us free. And though we have a, a sinful nature, we know that we've been set free from the power of sin, that we don't have to sin any longer, as we learn to put to de death the misdeeds of our flesh, because God has placed His Spirit in us 
to grow the Son of God in us, that we don't have to continue in sin any longer. And though we've been freed from the power of sin, we know that we still will sin, and we won't be freed from the very presence of sin until we get to glory. That's why, the, and if you've been around and in Christ for any period of time and you've grown, and you've discovered how evil you really are. At first, when we first become Christians, we have the outward sins that are pretty obvious. You know, the, the swearing, stealing, the lying, the immorality. But as we grow, those things, God starts to peel those layers off and it gets down to the, the pride, the self-love. That's, it gets into the, the more deep parts of who we are. But we see and understand through the Scripture and the testimony of the Word of God that there is a sin that has sentenced us. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. I mean, we like the word free, do we not? I mean, it, but it's interesting. Free has two connotations. I'm not talking about being free as a people. I'm talking about a free gift. Either free gift is really good, or we think free gift, it must not be good enough to want to own. It's like you see the garbage. When the garbage goes out and someone puts on the side of the road, puts a little paper on it, put a couch out there, it says free. And we go, well, it must not be worth that much. See, that's not this kind of free. This is like, this is like the best thing ever free. Where you stop and go, wait a minute, that can't be free. It's already been, and, and really, it's, it's free only because it's already been paid for by someone else. It's been paid for by someone else. So we have this sin that sentenced us. We are all under this sentence of sin, all of us. A sentence that we deserve because of our love for our sin. Now, but the story doesn't end there. If we were just to end the sermon right now, this is no longer a drama of redemption. This is a horror film. This is a tragedy that we would be left in our sin. It would be terrible. Knowing that we were sinners and we can't save ourselves. Now, see, we like to think that we can save ourselves. We like to think that we're pretty, pretty talented people and basically pretty good. And when stacked up against murderers and criminals, we're great. But see, the God is the one that we're stacked up against, not anyone else. See, it's like when you try to compare yourself with someone else, it's, it's really relative. I mean, it's like this. I mean, ants can compare themselves with one another, but they're still ants. When they're compared with the elephant, it doesn't matter how much the ant it stacks up against the other ant. See, God is the elephant in the analogy. We're not stacked up against other ants. We're stacked up against the elephant. We can't beat the elephant. See, even when we're stacked up next to God, we foolishly think that we can get by with God. We choose to live life the way we believe is right, but the problem is, is that we become the sole arbiters of truth. We're the ones who determine what is right and what is wrong. But our perception is skewed because of our sins. You can see, when it comes to God in the Bible, no one is objective. Do you realize that? Have you ever, have you ever interacted with someone and they said, well, I've studied it and I, I don't believe it. Or, I mean, I, I can be objective about this. No one can be objective with the Bible. Do you know Why? Because it indicts us. It says that we are sinners by nature and by choice. That we are, are damned. And, and the only way either to respond to that is by submit to it and agree with it and then follow God's prescription or reject it and explain it in a way. 
It's like being at the doctor's office and getting your exam. The doctor says to you, I have some terrible news. You have a terminal illness. And you can either, he says, but there's a cure if you do this. Now you can say, I don't believe it and not follow the doctor's advice. Or you could say, I believe it. There's no other, other option. And then you can be prepared to suffer the consequence then of your choice. I was speaking to a man a few weeks ago about Christ. I was trying to witness to him and share who Jesus is. And he, he kind of stopped me and he said, you know, I know what I believe. My response is, do you really? Do you really know what you believe? Let me ask you a question. Where does it lead? What if you were wrong? What is the end result? See, there are some choices that we make in life that can be off a little bit. It doesn't matter. Like my wife will give me a grocery list and she'll say, pick up butter. So I go to the store and I get butter, and of course there's like a million choices of butter. And I know, I know though from experience that we have sticks, butter sticks, you know, not the tub, but the butter sticks. So I know that. So I've, I've honed it down, and I know that she's not going to spend an entire ton of money on butter. So now I've come down to two choices, either the salted butter or the unsalted butter. And I inevitably choose the salted one. I come home and she goes, oh, I wanted the unsalted. Now that choice... It's not that big a deal. She'll deal with it, right? It doesn't, I mean, it doesn't affect that much, really, in the long run. So it's not that, that big of a deal if I'm slightly off. But there are other decisions that we make in life that if we're slightly off, that is catastrophic. For example, in 1998, NASA launched a $125 million Mars Climate Orbiter to explore the planet of Mars. Yet after a journey of nine-plus months through outer space, the orbiter disappeared September 23rd upon entry into the Martian atmosphere. The embarrassed rocket scientists uh, confessed to a profoundly simple mathematical error. Very simple. They failed to convert acceleration data from English units of force into metric units called newtons. The bad numbers had been used ever since the launch in December, but the effect was so small it went unnoticed. The distance, the difference added up over the months, and after traveling 416 million miles, the orbiter arrived 56 miles too close to Mars and was destroyed. It was a minor error, very small, that resulted in devastating consequences. Mightily, slightly off-course ideas about God yield similar disaster. See, might our conception of God and understanding of who he is and even the gospel be off? What does that mean? Disaster! See, God has revealed himself to us in and through his word, and we cannot pretend to not hear or be ignorant. My son is four and a half years old, and he, is, um, he builds stuff, and when he builds, he hums. And then he just hums and builds, and it's neat. I mean, he's building all of this stuff, and I'm looking forward to him becoming an engineer and then funding my retirement. But until that time, I'm watching this child, and he gets done, and I said to him, clean up your toys. He looks at me and just keeps building. And I say, hey, Elijah, clean up your toys. And he just looks and keeps looking at the stuff. And I have to get in his face, and I said, clean up your toys. He goes, oh, I didn't hear you. See, I mean, many of us are like that with God. We've heard God speak to us in church. We've heard him speak to us through the word. And then we think at the end of life, when God gets there, and we go, oh, <laughs> I didn't hear you. Now, just like with me with my son, I know 
that he heard me. Same is true with God. He knows. We can't pretend with God. He hears, and he knows that we hear him. See, God has spoken to us through his word, who he is, who we are, and what he has done for us. And the Bible from beginning to end is about the coming of a Messiah, one who would save us from our sins. And understanding that we have a sin that sentences us, then we move on to the Savior who was sacrificed for us. See, that's what the gospel is. God's good news is that God sent his son to save us. And the whole of the Old Testament, the whole purpose of the Jewish race was to bring about and be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And that blessing was seen and focused to the point that it was to come through Jesus. See, God gave Abraham a promise. Abraham, that promise continued on through his son Isaac. From Isaac, it passed on to his son Jacob. Jacob, it passed on to his son Judah. And then Judah extended for a few more generations and found its a tipping point in David. And then God says that, God tells David that I will bring basically the Messiah through you. That's why when you read uh, the Gospels and you have Jesus as the Son of, and it goes through because it had to trace back. And the whole point was to bring about the Messiah. And we see the echoes, the, the entirety of the Old Testament, the pages are rustling with the coming of Messiah. That was to come and save us from our sins. And everybody was looking forward to His coming. That the Savior who was sacrificed for us, that's what the whole theme of the Scripture is about, is who Jesus is. The Old Testament points to it. The, Old, the New Testament points back to that truth and life lived in understanding of that. Uh, I'm amazed of the story of W.A. Criswell, or the, the one that he tells of. He was a famed Baptist preacher in Texas, uh, now with Jesus. And he, he spoke about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was the, known as the greatest preacher who has ever lived. And spoke the English language. Um, Spurgeon, by the time he was 19 years old, was pastoring thousands of member church. By, and this is the 1800s. And um, when he was in his 20s, his sermons were already being published all over the world. He started thousands, I mean, over 2,000 ministries before he died. He was an amazing, amazing man. If you ever want to read some of Spurgeon, do so. But he said this, The greatest preacher our people has ever produced was Charles Haddon Spurgeon of the last century in London, England. And somebody came up to him once, one time and said, Mr. Spurgeon, your sermons sound all alike. And the great preacher replied, that's correct. They are all alike. Wherever, he said, I pick a text in the Bible, I then make a beeline to the cross. Because it's all about Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. It's the greatest story ever told. The story of a Savior who assumes the flesh and bones of his creation. Who rather than leave mankind to their fate to be destroyed, decides to love us. He loves us. He doesn't leave us where we are. He meets us where we are and gives his life to save us. He was sacrificed to, uh, for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our sins upon himself. He took the wrath of God meant for us upon himself. He took our sins, our sufferings, our sicknesses, our alienation. He took all of our rebellion, our lying, our backbiting, stealing, sexual immorality, our hate, contempt, and shame. He took it all and willingly sacrificed himself to us. And that act, that act was meant to be a summons for us to search our hearts. A summons. That's the next point that I want you to write down. It's a summons for all of us to search our hearts. That each one of us must then are faced with this decision. We can't ignore him. Either he's the Lord, he's either a liar, straight up lied about it. 
He was a complete lunatic. He was a complete legend, which we see him take place in history, and even secular historians testify to who he is, or he is the Lord of life. See, this act cannot be glossed over. I'm reminded of our president speaking this past week. And if we, we ignore it, I mean, if we wanted to, we could ignore it. I mean, he, most of us probably don't know anyone over there in, in Iraq or Syria. And the truth of what he said doesn't necessarily penetrate our hearts. But let's change the story a bit, make it a little bit more personal. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of ISIS or ISIL for a moment. And let's say that we heard that the United States was coming after us because of what we had done. Does that change things? I mean, does then what Obama said, does that make it more important to us? I mean, now we're living in the safety of our suburban lives. But if we're in Iraq and we know that we've done wrong, the president said he's coming after us, does that make us a little nervous? Especially what we've known he's done to other has been done to other other individuals. Yes, it changes things because we are indicted and know what we have done. See, you know it's the same is true for us. We've been in rebellion toward God. The Bible says that we are God's enemies. Now we think again, we're really good people. But you let me let me put it this way, and this is going to be not very not very tasteful to each one of us, because we think of ISIS as horrendous and what they've done is terrible. But you know the Bible describes us in that similar language as guilty, deserving God's justice, that we've been in rebellion toward God, that in some ways we are spiritual terrorists ourselves. And then imagine now, Obama says, I'm coming after you, and, 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 God, and he's, in essence, God saying, I'm coming after you. There is no safe haven for you. But he says, you know what? I know you're evil. I know what you've done. And you deserve justice and punishment. And I'm going to met that out on my child. And if you accept this reality, if you receive that, then you can come and have safe haven here and we will accept you and love you and be a part of our family. But if not, that wrath is coming. Oh, how does that change things? I mean, we think how evil and that makes us feel when we think of ISIS and you see the beheadings on TV and how horrible it is. But in that, we have to understand that's how we were to God and are apart from Christ. That we've rebelled. We've shook our hand in his, I mean, our fist in his face. And that feeling, you're like, I'm not that bad. Then you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand what sin is in the sight of God. You don't get it yet. You still think you're good. We have to understand how evil we really are and what it felt in the nostrils of God. That was justice had to be met. That injustice that we feel when we look at that, that's the feeling of God has for us. Apart from Christ, that we are spiritual terrorists who deserve our punishment, that we tried to hide under our own mask and masquerade, but God knows. God knows. And he still willingly gave his son to die for you, to go on Calvary's tree, to pay the price for you, to free you from your sin, to give you life with him. That's amazing. And it's a summons to each one of us to consider ourselves and our choices and we can either accept it or reject it there's no other option we cannot be switzerland with god we cannot be neutral we're either for him or we're against him 
And it's amazing. See, God knows that we're rebels and knows there must be justice, so he gives his son to step into our place, and now all who put their faith in him will be saved. That's good news. Such an act should cause us to pause, to stop and search our hearts, to think about what God would do, why he would do that for us, and what would happen if we decided to reject such an offer. What does that mean? God has extended the greatest gift that ever could be conceived, his son, to die for us. He died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. And that same power that worked Christ's resurrection is available to us. That's why Paul said, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now the word power is dunamis. It means power, might, strength, force, capability. It's an important word used 120 times in the New Testament. It is God's power at work to bring us to salvation to everyone who believes. We all have a type of power, physical power, power of beauty, powers of persuasion. But this is a power that is eminently greater and higher. It's God's power that works in us. And for us to really understand this drama of redemption, then it requires us discovering the power of the gospel. The power of of the gospel. You know, as I was researching my message, I, I was uh, talking about power, and, and I, I don't know how I got this, but I was looking for some stuff on YouTube, and I came across um, the film and video footage from the tsunami in 2004, and then the other one in 2011 in Japan. Do you remember those? For those that are around? And it's amazing. I'm watching the one in 2011, and it's in, in Japan, and these Japanese men are videotaping. And uh, you hear them, and they're yelling in Japanese. I have no idea what's going on. And I'm watching it, and the, and the video has it from the very beginning. And you see the water creep into the harbor just very slowly. It's not a big tidal wave. It's just creeping in, creeping in. And you can see them. They recognize that something's wrong how powerful it is. And then it starts going over the walls, and you see boats being washed away. And the, and the same in 2004, you see some uh, people, and, and again, this video is, is taken in Thailand, and they're watching on the beach, and they're amazed because the water just, the tide goes out so fast. And you see the woman, and it's uh, translated in Thai, and it says, I've never seen it go like this. And then the wave comes right at them. And that's power, and everything is decimated. Because of that immense power. And the power of the gospel is greater than that. Matter of fact, it's greater than a tsunami. It's greater than an earthquake. It's greater than a volcano. It's greater than a hurricane or a tornado. And it's that power working in us to live the life that God desires for us. I mean, it's, it's interesting here that the wonderful thing about the power of the gospel is what it does. The word is soterian. It means salvation from enemies and rescue. And, and it's transformative that God can rescue us. And who is our enemy? Well, according to the scripture, God is. But he's the one who rescues us from his wrath. wrath. But who's it available to? You know, as I was mentioning, I was looking into the footage of the, the Thailand and uh, the tsunami in Thailand and the tsunami in uh, Japan. And I came across the movie 2012. Anybody ever see that movie? It was made in 2009. It had John Cusack. He stars this geologist who discovers in the year 2010 that the Earth's core is heating up and it's going to cause worldwide devastation for many on the planet and going to destroy all of humanity. And in, in the movie, uh, you learn that the government officials across the world had all discovered this and learned it together. And they then uh, proposed to secretly construct four arcs 
that can hold and house 400,000 people that will be saved from this catastrophe and that can start humanity over again. But there's only um, two ways in to this ark. Number one, you've got to be part of the, the, big, the best and the brightest to get in. I mean, you've got to be uh, scholars and Rhodes scholars and basically genius intellects, or you have to pay the one billion euros fee per person to get on board. And you see people fighting to get on these arcs as the world is being destroyed around them. They're fighting, and they, they can't get entry because they're not, they're not part of the best and the brightest. You know, God could have chose the best and the brightest. He could have chose just the Jews, Jewish people. But he didn't, you know, he grafted us in. It's interesting that salvation does come from the Jews and that Christ was a Jew and he is the fulfillment of God's promises. As Paul says, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. But then God doesn't leave us who are Gentiles by birth. He doesn't leave us by ourselves. That's why he says here, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first in that they were beneficiaries of God's covenant promises, and to the Greek second. Not just referring to Greeks, but it's a way in speaking to Gentiles that we have, are then now grafted in to God's plan. That we're enabled and become beneficiaries of God's salvation. That we too can be saved. That it's not just for that 400,000, those the best and the brightest, that it can be for the, the worst offender. Those who were born foreign and outside of that covenant community can now be brought in. See, we can see that God's salvation is now available to all. It's available to all. Everyone here, you can be saved. It doesn't matter what religious background that you have, that if you trust in Christ and repent and, and invite him and receive him as Lord and Savior of your life, that you can be saved from God's wrath that has been proclaimed and, and foretold to come. It is available to all, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, which means everybody. But how does one get this salvation? Let's look at our verse again. For the, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is for those who believe. Belief is a powerful thing. It's about faith. The salvation is, this salvation is found by faith. Found by faith. And it's available to all. Now what is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of what God says is going to happen and a conviction in our hearts about something we can't see but believe will happen. Belief is a very powerful thing. And according to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. See, God gives us a gift that all can grab a hold of if they believe. Faith is a powerful thing. Faith itself is even a gift. It's amazing how faith can help us overcome and conquer our fear. We don't have to be afraid anymore. If we believe in Christ and if we know that God is going to judge the living and the dead and we know that Jesus' blood has cleansed us, we need not be afraid. But if you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, then you, will, you should be afraid because you're still under God's wrath. If you have faith, then you need not be under the burden of guilt any longer. Christ died to set us free. He was declared guilty in our place to free us from guilt. Therefore, we're not guilty in God's sight anymore. We're free. We no longer need to be ashamed 
of our past because he paid the price for that. He took our shame and was shamed himself, becoming sin for us. He bore our shame. He also gives us grace to to live in the future by faith. And if we believe, then we are rest assured that we will be rescued from his judgment in the future, that he has forgiven us of our sins, past, present, and future. He is the God of truth, after all. He is the the God who has stepped into time. He's not some legend like Beowulf or Osiris or, or the sun god Ra, Zeus. He steps into time. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed. People might be ashamed, but I'm not, because I've seen what it does. I've seen it at work. God's grace and love poured out. God knows the deepest longing in our heart and wants to take us from the wrong and set us on the right. He wants us to give us himself, cleanse us from our our sin, and help us be a part of what will endure for eternity. Now, this wonderful drama also is revealing God's righteousness. Revealing God's righteousness. Let's look at verse 17 for a moment. For in it, the righteousness of God, daikasune theo, the righteousness of God, it's a crucial phase and most likely means righteousness from God. Uh, so that it denotes a right standing before God. Scholars differ, righteousness of God, righteousness from God, so that it denotes a right standing before God. Uh, the idea is God takes our garbage, all of our sin, and then gives us his righteousness. We're legally righteous in God's sight. We were sinners by nature and by choice, spiritual terrorists, orphans, followers of the evil one. But God has brought us in. He's paid the price for our treachery and duplicity and given us his righteousness. Righteousness, whereby our status, our being has changed. He has made us new creatures, no longer bound by the sin that chained our soul, and no longer held captive by Satan to do his will. See, the phrase righteousness of God has a fuller meaning. It points to God's character as well. Now, the world for revealed is pakalepti, and it means to uncover or reveal something previously hidden. God's righteous character is seen from faith for faith. And what does that mean? It's probably translated better faith into faith, which is, a, is probably or most likely an emphatic construction and conveys the idea of faith from first to last. That we are justified by our faith, declared legally righteous in God's sight. And it's a central part of the gospel that our faith saves us. We cannot work our way to God. We'll never be good enough in God's sight by our works We will never be able to do good enough deeds to counteract our bad ones. It's not our works that save us, but faith. We're justified by faith alone, which means that we are declared legally righteous. Our state before God has changed. But faith is not a static thing. It's an active thing. This is where many get confused. I know that there are many who think that baptism saves them as a baby or as an adult, but that's nowhere in the Bible. When it says that this baptism now saves you, it's an appeal to a clean conscience before God because of our belief and faith in Christ of which baptism is a symbol and points to. There are others that think if we're good enough in the sight of God, he will accept them. However, we'll never be good enough. See, the truth of the faith of faith alone, and this verse particularly, have been used to transform some of the greatest giants of the faith lives. Consider Martin Luther. Martin Luther, uh, the first, uh, in, some would say the very first Protestant reformer, He talks about how this verse changed his life. In describing his conversion, he said, I had indeed been captured with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul and the epistle to the Romans. But up until that moment, it was not the cold blood out of the heart, but a single word or phrase in chapter 1. 
In it, the righteousness of God is revealed, that it stood in my way. For I hated that, that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they call it, with which God is righteous and punishes the righteous sinner. Though I lived as a monk, without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners externally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, which having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Quoting Habakkuk 2.4. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. By In other words, by placing our faith in him, God gives us his righteousness. We are passive. We did not earn that righteousness. He gives it to us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms is an analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, and the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place that in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. In other words, what he's saying there was, is I hated the term so much because I knew that I was judged as a sinner before God. That God would be righteous and I wasn't. But it, and it became torturous to him. It raged against him. Even because he was really good. He was moral. He was a monk. I mean, he was so busy doing business with God, he would go to confession all the time. And the the priest that would hear his confession got so burdened. And Martin Luther would literally leave the confessional, think about another sin, halfway out, turn around and start confessing again. And the priest would look at him and say, please come back when you have something worthy to confess. Because the priest thought, it's not that big a deal. Come on now. But Martin Luther's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm struck. My conscience is struck. I'm guilty before God. I need something. And the righteousness of God tortured him. But then he saw that it was from faith, that he, God was declaring him righteous, and the righteous shall live by faith for faith. And that it transformed him, and not just him. I mean, the truth of this that Luther spoke of permeated through several generations until it came to the great evangelist and itinerant preacher John Wesley who lived in the 1700s and traveled some 250,000 miles on horseback. It's a lot of saddle sores. 
For a while, though he was in church and serving God, he didn't have rest in his soul. He was told to preach faith until he got it. He didn't have real faith. One day he went to a prayer meeting and hearing Martin Luther's preface to the Romans, this very passage read in his words about being justified by faith, he felt his heart strangely warmed. The light of who Christ was and what God had done for him was a watershed moment, and he was transformed. The same truth can transform us all. With the righteous will live by faith. The same as it did for Luther and Wesley and for millions of others is for you. God will transform you and give you a purpose when we place our faith in him. Now once he serves us, he, he saves us, he doesn't leave us by ourselves. He gives us his Holy Spirit and he connects us with God's people. And for us to participate in this divine drama of redemption requires doing life with the very people of God. See, when he, he saves us, and we see within this passage, he talks about for the Jew first and also for the Greek, and he goes along later and says he makes the two one. In other words, he brings them into one body. And God saves us. He doesn't save us to stay by ourselves. He saves us to be a part of his church. He puts us in a family, a team of believers. A Christian who says that they don't need church is like a football receiver saying he doesn't need a quarterback. It can't happen. God saved a people for himself, and it's called a church, his body, his building, God's field. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian according to God's word. Now, he saves us to be united with others, and if we're living by faith, that's what he says within our text for today. He goes on in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvate, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, meaning where faith were justified and then we're to live by faith. And he says the righteous shall live by faith. It's the understanding of the righteous being united with other believers, living out faith together. We are to live with other believers by faith. It means doing life with the people of the gospel. Now, what does that look like? This isn't in your text, but I'm going to bring this out in three little quick points here. First of all, it requires active participation. Active participation. If you are in God's church, that means God has gifted you to serve. You are part of the priesthood of all believers. Your job is to do the ministry of the gospel. Every single one of us in this room. If you think you can just show up and hear the word of God preached, get spiritually fed, and then be out on your own, then you are in disobedience to the word of God. That God has prepared us for good works, and that we are to serve the body together. That means active participation. Secondly, it also means daily submission. Let me tell you, in the church, and I hear people say all the time, I don't want to get involved in church, it's full of hypocrites. I say to them, what's one more? Because we all have issues. We all have problems. We all have our, our faults. We all have our, our things and our character flaws. I have many, and you, many of you will know them. It's not hard to tell. But I'm working on them. And, and I'm, I'm glad I'm a part of a body that I can grow with, that can, people can speak the truth to me, and I can try to make the changes necessary that God wants me to make. And it means submitting to Christ. I, I like how I was talking to my, uh, my brother Brian this past week. We were working together, and he was, mentioned, he was thanking God for sandpaper people, people that smooth out the rough edges of our life. Sandpaper people and sandpaper situations. God puts us in to smooth out the rough edges. And that's why God puts people with difficult personalities in our life in difficult situations to smooth us out. See, sometimes it's amazing. We pray that God would remove the situation, but we also pray to grow Christ-like, and God gave that situation so we would be Christ-like. 
So it means daily submission, putting aside our needs, dying to ourselves. I was asking my brother, I said, can you help me out the other day? He's like, dying to self, dying to self. Who are you talking to? I don't know. I'm dying to self. I'm dying to self. Because he was dying to self. He wanted to serve, but he also wanted what he wanted to do. We all have that. It means putting aside ourselves and daily submission to one another. We submit to the Lord, knowing that he will work it out in his time. When we submit to God, we give our situations over to him, knowing that he will work out everything for his glory. And lastly, it involves ongoing transformation. Aren't you thankful for that? That God's still transforming us? I mean, he makes us into new creatures, but he continues to grow the Son of God in us, that we might further be conformed to the image of God. Aren't you glad? How many could testify and say, I'm glad God's not done with me yet? I, I could testify to that. I'm glad he's not done with me yet. I know that I've got major things in my life that God's got to work on and shape. And I'm glad that I'm, I'm growing. I'm not yet what I will be. But I know that the more that I walk with Christ, the more that I fellowship with his people, I know that the more I'm going to be conformed into that image for his glory and my joy. See, if we're living by faith, and as we grow, we will be transformed. God is working in us. He is putting situations and people into our lives to smooth out that, at those edges. See, God has made it when we have faith in him and we die to ourselves. Then he begins to transform us and make us look more like his son. See, this divine drama of redemption is not just something we watch. See, God is the author, the director, and the star of this divine drama of redemption. We've got small parts. You know, we're, we're, we're a part of that five-second or one-second scene where the, pan, the camera flashes back. But it's when we recognize that it's not about me, it's about him, that we start to find real joy. That, we get to, that God not only puts the, has the show and we can watch it, he invites us to be a participant. He says, you see it played out, but I'm inviting you to step onto this stage by believing in me, by trusting in me, and, and inviting us to participate in this divine life that God makes available unto us. How do we receive it? It involves repenting of our sins and turning, changing our mind about our sin and turning unto him and believing in him. So it means turning from our sins, turning to the Savior, and that he will save us and allow us to be a part of this divine drama of redemption. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Lord, I'm, I'm amazed at that truth. I'm amazed that you have called us and that you have enabled us to have faith in your name, that you've grafted us in, that the salvation is made to everyone. And Lord, for those that are here that have not surrendered unto you, Lord, I pray that you bring that conviction, that they might see that they can be saved by placing their faith in you. And Lord, for whatever their background is, I'm reminded of Martin Luther, who had been serving you, and yet he still wasn't saved. Lord, for those that are here today that might be serving you and not saved, I pray that you bring the truth of your word home in their heart, that they might have true faith and salvation in and through you. And Lord, for those who are walking with you, I pray that we might be bold and not be ashamed. That we might understand the reality of who you are and what it is that you have done for us. And that we might speak the truth of God boldly and in love to a, a lost and dying world. May we consider the cross anew, understanding what it is that you have done for us. May we understand how to live this life together as you have purposed it. And may your name receive glory in us as a church as we are seeking to live out this life that you have saved us for. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
If you're a person and you know that uh, you are a sinner and that you have, want to trust in Christ, just, and, and maybe you have, just call on him. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Scripture says that very clearly. Repent of your sins and invite him in, and receive him as Lord and Savior.